Hi, I'm Nitan. And I'm Adam. And you're listening to Stories from the Eastern West. This show is all about little-known histories from Central and Eastern Europe that changed our world. Today's episode is about one of the first celebrities to go into politics. As anybody listening today knows, he certainly wasn't the last. But today you'll hear about the original big celebrity turned big politician, Ignacy Jan Paderewski. And this man's life, well, has some pretty insane stories. I could say this without any reservation that Paderewski was a grandfather of wine industry in California. That's why in London, Byrne Jones saw him in the street and said, I've seen my angel, I must draw him. Roosevelt personally cabled the ambassador and Franco to let Paderewski pass. That's right. I I mean, I, I told you this can go on forever. But today, we'll just tell you his most important story. How he put an entire country back on the map after it had disappeared 123 years before. Zlín, Praha, Varsava, Madrid, London, Paris, New York, Casablanca. Where you see a kind of totality of the human presence. Absolutely, absolutely. That is exactly. Stories from the Eastern West. Helping us tell the bulk of our story today are two special guests the pianist and composer Marek Jabrowski and Adam Zamoyski, a historian and author. The first voice is Marek's. When Paderewski was born in 1860, Poland did not exist. It had been wiped off the map 65 years earlier. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had been carved up by the empires of Austria, Prussia, and Russia. Paderewski was born into the part controlled by... Cossacks, who were then a kind of paramilitary force that the Russians used as a supplementary police. And one day, when Paderewski was just three years old, they... Turned up with horses and guns and lances. Cossacks invaded his house and arrested his father for helping the uh, Poles who were involved in the 1863 insurrection, the January Uprising. The January Uprising, a huge failed attempt for freedom that ended with terrible, harsh repercussions. Back at Paderewski's house... He clung to his father and complained to the Cossacks, why are you taking away my father? He got the taste of Russian justice by being hit with a horsewhip. The father was taken away and carted off for one year in prison. It was a, a powerful kind of image for him. It was a kind of symbol of the martyrdom of his family and indeed of his country. Whether it was an invented memory or a real one, it doesn't really matter. It was a very strong one. The reality was that the time and place they lived in was beyond hope. That uprising wasn't the only reach for freedom that was crushed. He was brought up in a place where there was, which was absolutely no eye on the world. Politically, it didn't exist. It was a province. It was clear that force was no use. That was when Paderewski decided they had to fight a different way, through music. In 
music by Polish composers like Chopin especially uh, could be performed and that would be one way to manifest your national pride. The only road he could take was to become a musician and hope to rise to a position in which he would then be able to do something. To become someone who would carry the good name of Poland, Polish culture, Polish music into the audiences all across the globe. Essentially political, the small p. Paderewski did not get an easy ticket to his pianistic career there. He was judged to be too old to learn anything. He was no child prodigy, by the way. Every teacher said to him, oh, you'd be a great trombone player, but Paderewski was hell-bent on, on learning uh, to be a virtuoso pianist. Can you imagine uh, a world-famous virtuoso doing Chopin polonaise on the trombone? By the time Paderewski was 24, his career hadn't really gotten much further than Warsaw, but a chance meeting with actress Helena Mojeska, already well-known in America for her Shakespearean roles, changed everything. Seeing his potential, the actress took him under her wing and organized a joint concert in Krakow. The concert was so successful that he could afford to go to Vienna to study with the most famous piano teacher of the day, Teodor Leszczycki. After three years of intense work, day and night, where Paderewski learned to play piano almost from scratch again, he finally felt ready to hit the capitals of Europe. He started with Vienna in 1887, followed by Paris two years later. But what was so interesting was that when he hit Paris, at a moment when society was rather bored, rather tired, and desperately wanted a new genius to hit them, Paderewski ticked all the right boxes. His life of hardship had given him a spark of determination and a look of torment that some said exuded genius and the suffering of a real artist. And he had this fiery, not quite red, golden hair. And he played in a rather extraordinary way, rather undisciplined, which again people thought this must be genius. He was able to bring out from the piano an incredibly powerful yet singing tone. Paris audiences could not hear enough of him. And not just Paris, he was soon the toast of London too, and then all of Europe. Soon, he had won the attention of the American piano makers Steinway. You have to remember that back in the late 19th century, pianos were everywhere. Today, every household has at the very least some sort of radio to play music on, but in the 19th century, you had to make your own entertainment. At its peak, just about every living room had a piano in it. And what was the best marketing campaign for your company's piano? Get the hottest new pianist to play that thing everywhere they go. And that was when things really kicked off. Steinway pianos were becoming famous. They launched his career as much as he launched theirs. Paderewski first toured the United States in 1891 and 92. He debuted at Carnegie Hall, which was just open in November of 1891. 
and he proceeded triumphantly across the eastern seaboard of the United States and the Midwest. The tour was a massive success, which obviously meant that they couldn't let it end on just that. This um, tour basically laid a blueprint for subsequent 20 tours of the United States that Paderewski made in his lifetime. Yes, 20 tours, most of them over a hundred years ago. He was really pretty much the first real, real traveling idol. Although before him, people like Rubinstein had um, been acclaimed greatly. But here, his looks and his manner introduced that little element of of sexual attraction. And at the core of Paderewski's success was that he was basically one of the hardest working musicians who ever lived. After all, his public did love him. I mean, it sounded like they really loved him. Uh, His clever managers organized groups of young girls who would rush the stage with scissors trying to snip some of his locks. His hair was as a feature of the whole thing. And of course, that caused pandemonium in the audience. And the news of such events clearly helped with other concerts and more audiences who wanted to witness such a spectacle. The whole thing did rather embarrass him and frighten him. Uh, but, But there's not much he could do about it. There's also something else that comes with being incredibly popular. Even in the 1920s, he would earn something like eight or $10,000 per concert, which was a phenomenal sum of money. And he played hundreds of these concerts. One of the American newspapers quipped that Fort Knox in the United States would be left bare. His tours were a grand affair. Uh, He traveled across the United States in a private railway car that was uh, given to him by Pullman Company. They had uh, dining uh, rooms, uh, bedrooms, uh, baths, uh, kitchen and cooks, and, and he also had piano. It was all so different from the life he'd had before. He'd... Uh, lived on the bread line, you know, with holes in his shoes. I think he knew that he, was, he wasn't he was a transcendent talent. I mean, I think he knew that he was just jolly lucky to have got where he'd got. He really did feel grateful, and he showed his gratitude through his philanthropy. Paderewski was also generous to all sorts of humanitarian causes. That's why he was popular with the audiences. They saw him as a great artist, but also as a good man. Of course, a lot of the money he gave was also to help Polish causes. He hadn't forgot why he'd done all this in the first place, why he'd even started a music career. I think we can pinpoint rather accurately the first uh, instance, a big instance, when Paderewski's instincts as a musician and instincts as politicians came into one. And that year was 1910. For Poles, the year 1910 marked a significant anniversary. 
500 years since the great and very historical battle of Grunwald or Tannenberg, where Polish forces uh, defeated the um, uh, uh, the Germans, the Teutonic Knights. Paderewski saw an opportunity. What he wanted was to, to give people heart, to to make a statement saying, come on, look, look back at our history. We were strong once. We could do it again. Paderewski decided that the Grunwald monument ought to be erected. He wanted it to be built in Krakow. Krakow, the historical capital of Poland. His choice had meaning. But the Austro-Hungarian Empire was in control of Krakow, and it didn't like the idea. They threw all sorts of problems in his way in terms of costs and permits. Well, for Paderewski, nothing was simpler than that. Uh, by 1910, he was a very wealthy man, and he eventually funded uh, the building of this monument. The festivities in July of 1910 were unprecedented. It was a cultural act, but really, it had political implications. And since that time, Paderewski became a spokesman for Poland. He started giving fiery speeches, such as the one in Lviv in 1910, commemorating Chopin's centenary. We cannot have Polish schools. We cannot use our native tongue on daily exchanges. We cannot use our cultural background in any other way except among ourselves. But one thing that the partitioning powers could not take away from us is Chopin's music, his polonaises, his mazurkas, which embody Polish soul, Polish spirit, and Polish history. And that is why we're still strong. That year, 1910, was crucial in transforming Paderewski from a world-class virtuoso to a world-class statesman. And Paderewski had the right connections for a transformation like this. He had come to know most of the political elites of Europe and the United States. He had performed for so many political figures before and gotten to know many of them after playing for them. And he would always talk to them about Poland. Before Paderewski appeared on the American scene, the Poles simply didn't exist in the American imagination as a coherent nationality with some kind of a, a real cause. With Poland in the minds of its allies, Poles just needed some sort of political opportunity, just some small chance to turn that goodwill into real change. And that chance came when the partitioning powers, Russia, Prussia and Austria-Hungary, began to fight each other. World War I. Paderewski immediately saw how things might play out. And in that war, in that conflict, Paderewski saw the opportunity for Poles to actually regain their independence. He instantly went from London to the United States and he started playing concerts and making patriotic speeches. His goal was to encourage America to take part in the war in Europe. 
Paderewski was a master at speaking to the hearts of the American people, even if they had never even heard of Poland. Every speech, he started with these words. I have to speak to you about a country that is not yours, in a language that is not mine. That was a very clever way of telling the audiences that they have to hear about a faraway land of which they may not have known much, but it's a land that is worth knowing. He united the entire American Polonia, gave $5 million of his own funds and raised another $5 million to start an army, which became the Haleras army. And with that army, Poles could fight on the Allied side and therefore have a place, secure a place at the negotiating table. He took the force he had had as a music star and transformed how politics was done. The most important thing he did was to convince Colonel House, who was very, very influential indeed with President Wilson, that Poland, a revived Poland, a reborn Poland, could be a very important uh, force for good in the whole region. House told Paderewski at one point, you have about three days and I will present your memorandum directly to President Wilson. And Paderewski, literally in between the concert engagements, had to sit down and spend two nights writing this all up, had it dictated and sent to House, who passed it on to Wilson. He had made the point amongst the highest in the land that, you know, the Poles weren't all a bunch of peasants working in the canneries of Chicago. They were, you know, they were people um, with a culture and with a right to, um, to exist. And Wilson acceded to that demand by uh, drawing a peace plan for Europe, which included independent and sovereign Poland with access to the sea. Poland's independence was a key part of Wilson's 14 points, a plan for bringing peace back to Europe after the war. Paderewski was able to secure this uh, promise from Wilson and secure Poland's independence. Eventually, in 1918, that fateful day came. After four years, the Great War had ended. The country signed an armistice on November 11th. And they wanted a representative of Polish government that was instantly and universally recognized as such. By that time, Marshal Piłsudski, the military leader of the Polish armed forces throughout the war, had set up a temporary government. But the Allies were worried about his territorial ambitions. And, you know big politics, they didn't know him in person. Meanwhile... Paderewski, everybody knew. They knew who he was. They knew where he stood politically, ethically, morally. And they approached Paderewski, would he represent the Allies in Poland right after the war ended? I don't think he wanted to, but he saw that he was the person for the hour. He did not have ambitions to be a politician. He was far more famous as a musician. In fact, uh, Clemenceau, uh, when he saw him at the Paris conference, he said, Mon Dieu, you look just like Paderewski the pianist. Is this the case? And he said, yes, 
Monsieur, I am Paderewski, the pianist. And Clemenceau, a reply to this, said, what a come down, you've become a politician. But Paderewski was on a mission and knew what and how he wanted to achieve. And here is his incredible political instinct. Paderewski went to Balfour and he said, okay, you want me to go to Poland and represent the Allies? He said, fine, but I will have to sail on board an English warship to Gdańsk. Now think about the symbolism of this idea. Britain was the strongest power at the end of World War I, and Paderewski was using their boat to sail into Gdańsk, a port fought over by Germans and Poles for years. It was a masterstroke of international diplomacy, and diplomacy by symbol. When he arrived, the effect was spectacular. But the journey wasn't going to end there. Arrived in Gdańsk, boarded a train. When he arrived in Poznań, uh, uh, an uprising broke out. Yes, he arrived in the capital of the Prussian partition of Poland and gave a speech. And in three days, Poznań was the only and the first Polish city that was liberated from the German rule. Wherever he went, Paderewski was like this harbinger of independence. So Paderewski had this electrical effect on the audiences, whether as a pianist or a politician. Paderewski was officially appointed Prime Minister of Poland on January 18, 1919, but also given the title of Foreign Minister. And then in June came the Treaty of Versailles. Although peace was in place, Versailles was where the world decided the next stage to make it official. The borders of France were being redrawn, those of Italy, Germany, Austria. I mean, the whole place was up for grabs. And here was Paderewski, ready to lead a new Poland into the official post-war world. Finally, he would realize his childhood dreams and bring back a nation. But of course, things aren't always as simple as we'd like. The restored Poland was only a shadow of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and a lot had to be sacrificed. Vast territories in the East, including several historical cities, seemed to be lost forever. Nevertheless, for the little boy who'd been sitting around uh, all those years before, um, wandering around barefoot in the middle of nowhere, just longing to do something for his country and not knowing how to do it. So signing the Treaty of Versailles and actually thereby bringing Poland formally back onto the map of Europe. It must have been an extraordinary moment. Especially when he suffered, you know, severe lashing from a Cossack in 1863 at the age of three. He might have dreamt of Poland being independent one day, but this was the day when Poland actually became independent. So it was a crowning achievement of his life. But Paderewski didn't stay on as Poland's prime minister for long. Internal tensions got to be too much for him. One of the main reasons was the way other political figures were pushing Poland towards another war. Paderewski knew that starting a war just after regaining independence was a very bad move, and before that happened, he resigned from the government. So in the end, Paderewski returned to music. He cabled his manager in New York saying, what do you think about my coming back with a recital? His manager in New York instantly replied, 
just give me a date and I'll fill the hole, no problem. He knew that Paderewski was recognizable now to almost everyone, not only music lovers, but also, you know, people reading daily papers and following politics and history and, and everything else. The irony was that whenever he went to America or even Britain or France, he was fated and, and everybody treated him as the greatest living Pole and the kind of unofficial King of Poland. Um, whereas at home, people just got on with rebuilding the country and he was he sort of faded a bit from, from as, as people do in politics. But of course, that experience, that fight to put Poland back on the map, had changed him. When Paderewski came back as a pianist, uh, his reviewers noted a much more mature pianistic style, different interpretation, even more insightful music making. And so, in a sense, Paderewski's art benefited from his political experience as well. Extraordinary as it may seem, that was the case. There is a lot more we could tell you about Paderewski, but we have to end it here. We'll just encourage you to go look up the life of this extraordinary man. Both our guests Marek Szabrowski and Adam Zamoyski have written extensively about the musician-turned-politician if you're looking for somewhere to start. Many thanks to both of them and to the National Museum in Warsaw who also helped us put this episode together. Stories from the Eastern West is produced by Culture PL and was hosted by Adam Zawawski and me, Nitsan Reisner. This episode was written by me, Adam Zawawski, produced by Piotr Wojcicki and edited and scored by Wojciech Olekszy. Again, Special thanks to our guests Marek Żabrowski and Adam Zamoyski, without whom this episode couldn't have been made. Also, many thanks to Eliza Rose and Niall Morgan for helping us to record Marek across the ocean. If you want to find out more about Poland's road to independence, be sure to check out the show notes at sftew.com. And here on the show in two weeks, we will travel to the Czech Republic to discover the inner workings of a real-life utopia. And if you enjoyed listening, help us grow. Simply tell somebody about us or recommend us to your friends on social media. It really does help a whole lot. In the meantime, to all our listeners in Poland, happy Independence Day.